Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chapel, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. We're sitting here the day after election day, and on today's episode, we're talking about winning big in politics. First up, we have Tamika Montgomery, founder of the podcast Raising Entrepreneurs and CEO of Core Strategy Partners. Learn how she was appointed to lead the Small Business Administration Office of Entrepreneurial Development by President Obama himself in 2013. Next up, we're talking to Tommy Laren, the youngest political talk show host in history, who's now a Fox News contributor. She's going to be discussing the importance of staying true to your beliefs, even when they're controversial. And last up is Philip Stutz, founder and CEO of two startup marketing companies and author of Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies That Digital Marketers Sell. He's going to be sharing persuasion strategies and business lessons from working on high-level political campaigns. This is Winning Big in Politics, and remember, if you enjoy this episode, be sure to take a screenshot and tag Travis Chapel on Instagram with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, guys, hope you enjoy. So talk to me a little bit about how you were appointed to lead the Small Business Administration's Office of Entrepreneurial Development back in 2013, because I know that a lot of times that kind of stuff doesn't just... Like that wasn't typically like a goal that you might have. Maybe it just happened or was it a goal? And were you pushing for that? How did that actually come to fruition? 
Yeah, it was not a goal. It wasn't even on my radar screen, to be honest. I was in, I'm originally from Colorado. So I live in Washington, D.C. now, but I'm from Colorado and at the time was living, I moved back to Colorado probably, I think it was in 2000, 2001. I had, in fact, been living for a couple of years here in the D.C. area. I was a what's called a presidential management fellow with the U.S. Department of Justice. And essentially, that's a program that recruits people out of graduate school or law school to get on a fast track into the upper levels of of government. And so I got I was finished my degree at Columbia, got into this presidential management fellows program was in D.C. working for the Department of Justice for the Office of Juvenile Justice and did it for two years. The idea with the program is you get special perks over the two years. And after two years, their hope is that you will stay with the agency that's invested into your development. But for me, I did the two years and I was like, okay, government work is really not for me. So I quit and I moved back to Colorado. And when I moved back to Colorado, I met a woman, just met a woman who had acquired a 37 acre property. And her plan was to redevelop that property because it had a number of buildings on it. And so she wanted to redevelop that property. And one of the the buildings on the property is about 26,000 square feet. And she wanted that redeveloped into a business incubator. And so when I met her, she asked me if I could develop the business incubation, the business incubator. And so this was in January of 2001. And I said, sure, I can do that. And so that is what got me into Colorado and Denver's small business community because I developed this business incubator as one of Denver's first inner city business incubators. And So what that included was we had to get the building done and refinish. I had to develop the programming, recruit the companies to come into the incubator. And as a result of kind of being in Denver's small business community, obviously, built up my network and my relationships. And after about three years with that organization, was had the opportunity. I left that organization and was hired to become the executive director of the Denver Metro Small Business Development Center, which was located at the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. And so I was doing that and enjoying my work supporting Denver small businesses and developing programs and such. And I did that for about seven years and loved the work that I was doing and but also felt like it was time for me to move on. It just so happened that year, there are about, let me backtrack, there are about 900 small business development centers across the United States. It's a program that's partially funded by the U.S. Small Business Administration. Back in 2012, the SBDC that I ran was named number one in the nation by the U.S. Small Business Administration. And I had gotten word that there was going to be a high level SBA official that was going to be coming to Colorado for an event. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet this person. So this person came to Colorado and actually he there was an event in Colorado Springs, which is probably about maybe an hour away from Denver. So I drive up to Colorado Springs and I put together this bag of swag to give him. And so 
get there and I introduce myself to him and I say, hello, my name is Tamika Montgomery. I run the number one SBDC in the nation. And, and so we just got to talking. And as we were talking, he said, have you ever thought about working for the government? And I said, well, you know what? I was a presidential management fellow years ago. And he said, oh, we love presidential management fellows. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm made, if I'm cut out for working for the government. And he said, when you come to D.C., because the SBA was going to have this big award ceremony for all of the winners of the different SBA awards during Small Business Week. Yeah. So he said, when you come to D.C., let's meet and let's talk. So I was like, OK. So anyway, a few months later, so that was in March of 2012. And in Mar in May, I went to DC for the celebration and met with him again. And we just got to chatting and he was telling me that there was going to be an opportunity opening up at the SBA at its headquarters that he thought I should really consider and pursue. So I was like, okay, we'll see. Anyway, go through the ceremonies, head back to Denver. And at that time, there was another position in Colorado that opened up as well. It was to be the executive director of the Leadership Foundation in, in Denver, Colorado. As well, that position that he mentioned opened up. And the position was to be, it was a career federal employee position. And it was to be over the Small Business Development Center program for the nation. So as I mentioned, I was a local small business development center of which there were not, there are about 900. So this position was the opportunity to basically run the national SBDC program. So that position opened up, hit the street. So I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I could consider that as a federal position because it was very different from the entry level position that I had many years ago. Yeah with the Department of Justice. So I said, okay, let me apply for it. So I applied for that position and I applied for the foundation position. Government takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no. Nothing moves quickly in government. And so anyway, I was offered the position to lead this foundation. And the foundation essentially was a foundation that took business leaders and educated them on civic issues. And so it would take the top business leaders. And we had a number of different programs that we would do throughout for business professionals. Yeah. So anyway, I got that position. And the day I started that job, I called the SBA and I said, hey, I want to pull my name from being considered. And they were like, oh, no, you're our number one candidate. Can you come out next week to interview? Hmm. I was like, no, <laughs> I can't. You know, it's just, yeah. I'm happy with the choice that I've made. Anyway, this gentleman, he calls me up and he says, Tamika, I heard he's, oh, would you consider? I think you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, well, you know what? Can't do it. I'm good. Thank you, you know, for thinking of me, but moving on. So that was in August of 2012. Okay. And then a few months later, several months later, I guess, in March of 2013, he reaches out to me again and he says, can we talk? And I was like, OK, sure. And I had no idea why he would call me because we don't we didn't really know each other. Right, I, I, we right. just had those kind of couple of encounters. And I said, sure. And he gives me a call and he asked me, he says to me that the president has gotten reelected. And I said, yes. 
And he said, when we met, there was just something about you. And I felt like you would be really good for this agency. And he said, do you know how presidential appointments work? And I said, I know of them, but I don't really know how they work. Because you have to understand, living and working in Colorado and Denver is very different from being in the D.C. metro area. It's just it's a different vibe. So I wasn't involved in politics like that. I wasn't participating on campaigns and doing all of that national campaigns and things of that sort. That wasn't my background. And so when he asked me that, I said, I know what they are, but I don't know how it works. And he said, essentially, a person that is in the administration reaches out to another person that they believe would be a good fit for the administration. And it can go from there. And he said, when we met, I just saw something and I felt like you'd be great for the administration. The president has been reelected. Are you interested in learning more? Are you interested in talking? And so I have to admit, Travis, I was a little hesitant. And the reason why is because I had just taken this leadership, this role to run this foundation in the role for seven months. So I was so I went home and talked to my husband and my husband was like, Hello, this is <laughs> Barack Obama. Once in a lifetime, the, yeah. The very first African American president. Yes, you are interested in learning more. Yeah. <laughs> So I called him back and I say, yeah, let, I'm interested in, in finding out more. And so over the next couple of weeks, he and I just began to speak more. And he eventually revealed to me that the position that he was recruiting me for or interested in recruiting me for was his very position. So he was an appointee and had been with the administration. He had started in the first term and was ready to move on. And, uh, and I was like, wow. So I flew out to D.C. and I met with the president's personnel office. I met with all of the political leadership at the U.S. Small Business Administration. And then I went back to D.C. and they said, OK, we'll get back to you. And then over the next couple of months, they asked for more information. And I was offered the position. Wow. And what was really amazing about all of this is because that initial position that he was trying to get me to apply for, that initial career federal employee position, actually, once I was appointed to this new role, actually reported to me. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So he was initially trying to recruit me to work for him in a leadership role. And Uh I eventually took his role and that position was now reporting to me, which is amazing when you think about it. Oh, yeah. So most people, when a video goes viral, it's very much a, it's a positive thing for everybody. Everybody's happy about it. A few friends of mine have put out viral stuff and it's, oh yeah, like high five, you put out something viral, cool. And uh, when you put out something viral, it comes with, a package of a big like (laughs) bottle of hate. So talk to me about the first time where you started like reading through some stuff and you're like, oh my goodness, these people are like actually hating me. How did that whole situation unfold? 
I think I had a little bit of a dose of it just all the way through, just being a conservative. I think that was the time, and when those came out, that was during, that was leading up to the 2016 election. This was yeah. 2015, so things were heating up. A things little were unrest. Yeah, I was used to that environment. And those, when I went after Obama, I actually had a lot of support for that. It was very military-focused, and so there wasn't as much hate in, in that commentary as, of course, now I get when I talk about other things. But going viral is something I never planned to do it. I didn't put it out there. Someone else took a segment of my show that I did every single night, five days a week, and they recorded it and put it out there. So I was stunned when it went viral because that wasn't something I was trying to do. But I knew when I did it that it was powerful. And I knew that it would get a reaction. I just didn't think it was going to be a viral reaction. But then after that, it was some people then when they get the viral bug, then everything they want to go viral in everything that they do. So I get that a lot from people. They say, oh, are you saying these things to purposely be controversial and polarizing and make people mad so you can get attention and go viral? The answer is no. If I were to be someone like that and I were to do that for the purpose of going viral, I would have had 15 minutes of fame and then I would have been done. Mm. Because when you start taking the passion out of it, you start taking the work out of it, and you start taking the authenticity out of it, that's when you're going to fail every single time. My intent, and anything I do is not to go viral. It's just to be from the heart, to be passionate. I talk about things I'm passionate about. I don't need to create them. I don't need to engineer it. This is how I am. This is what I believe. I believe very strongly in a set of things. And when I talk about those things, they're probably going to go viral. And it's not because I'm saying things that are necessarily just because they're controversial. Yes, that's part of it. But it's also because you can feel the passion that I'm speaking with. And it's very easy to be a shock jock. And there's a lot of people that have tried to do it since. They want to go viral. They want to imitate this career that I've built. But you see it's hollow because they're doing it to make money. They're doing it to be famous. They're doing it to go viral. They're not doing it because they feel it deep within their bones. Yeah. And And that's the thing. People can love me or hate me. As long as they know that I'm being authentic, that is the most important thing. And people are still going to say that it's not. Sure. I know who I am. People are going to call me names. I know who I am. It really doesn't bother me anymore. I. But it had to at first. It really, quite honestly, didn't. Really? No. I've always had a very strong sense of self. Mm. So if I'm saying something and people, especially because... If people are criticizing me for my intelligence, sometimes it hurts a little bit. Yeah. When fellow conservatives criticize my intelligence, that's what really actually bugs me yeah. because I know that I'm not unintelligent. Yeah. But when people say, oh, you're this, or they call me names, or they say disgusting, horrible things about me, I have to respect you to respect what you say about me. Mm. If you're calling me a nasty name, if you're calling me outside of my name, if you're labeling me something that I'm not, it doesn't affect me because I know who I am. And I think if more people had that confidence in themselves, then they wouldn't worry about validation from everybody else all the time. Young people now, especially with social media, they are so worried about their likes, their comments, their retweets, their views. That is where they get the validation. And if someone says just one thing mean about them, they could say a hundred nice things, but that one person that says that one mean thing can just completely devastate them. And that's not freedom to me. Freedom to me is being able to look at it, take the good with the bad, not let my head swell when people say great things, and not let me be completely shattered when people say horrible things. There's a balance there that I've been able to find through doing this for several years and having several moments of controversy along the way. uh, Props to you. Yeah, (laughs) props to you for keeping a level head majority of the time because I feel like I would lose it on some people with some of the things that they say. But anyway, okay, so you have the first one that goes viral, and then now the blaze just reaches out to you out of the blue? Like, how did you 
feel about that knowing that they just turned you down for an internship like a year in the <laughs> I was going to work for free and now you're going to pay me. So I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> it was, pretty, was it like a haha, a justifying yeah. moment well, of. It was a little yeah. bit. It was just, I think this is the next step and yeah. this is the, is a new opportunity. And it's like this you is can't again. ignore me any longer. Like. Yeah. And it was just like they, I was wanted and people took notice of what I was doing and it was a new challenge. And I always like new challenges. Anytime something, I would rather go in and build something, like I've said, from the ground up than to walk into something that's already built. I think that there's something exciting about that. So that was the next opportunity to build my own show again. And that's exciting. It's going to take a lot of work, but I found that next peak. It's okay. Now I know the next thing I want to do. And I feel peace with that. I feel peace in knowing what's the next thing I need to work hard at. So you were only at One America for a year before? A little over a year, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So you were there for a year, then you jump at the opportunity to do this thing that really was essentially your dream job to, to work at the blaze like with Glenn Beck and do well, let's be clear stuff. the dream job is always Fox News okay. but yes that was Got the it. next step in the progression because I knew that I wasn't gonna jump here yet yeah. I knew that I needed more training another and more stepping growth. stone yeah exactly I enjoyed the fact that this was the next and I didn't I never looked at the blaze as a stepping stone I think that people also get caught up in that where they're like that same thing, like, this isn't where I want to be, that's where I want to be, but this is going to get me there. No, everything I go into, really for the long haul, I'm going to do it until, and I'm going to do it until I've reached the potential I can reach there and I need to do something else challenging. I never look at something as just, oh, this is just going to get me to this place. It's, no, this is where I'm going to be until I hit the ceiling. Yeah. And then the, where's the next ceiling? But that was where I was, and I was in the midst of the 2016 election. So it was really exciting for this industry. And I was really able to, again, chart a course that was interesting and new, and it was fun. That was one of the funnest times was during that election. Yeah, what are some of like the biggest lessons that you learned during that time? Has there ever been a time where you put something out and you're like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way, or maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. The, the message still ring, rings true, mm -hmm. but maybe I should have gone about it a different way. Are there any big lessons or takeaways that you had from that time period? I think we always have to learn and there are times now even where there's something that I want to say or I want to tweet and I have to hold myself back a little bit and think, is this worth the backlash it's going to get? Not that I don't mean it, but is it worth the backlash? Is it worth disrupting my peace right now to say it? And if it's not, I don't say it. You almost put it through a filter. A, a filter a little filter bit. It's just like... I always just weigh the benefit and the consequence to right. the things that I say. And sometimes I don't. And I've been guilty of that before where I've said there's to me really only two times in my career. Other people would probably say, what about this? What about this? What about this? I don't apologize for this or this. But there's a couple of things that I have said where I was like, hey, that needed more clarification. It didn't come out. That tweet was not worded the way I should have worded it. There's been instances like that and you have to learn and grow from them. And you have to learn to apologize when you do say things that go out of bounds or that the, the intention doesn't match the result. Yeah. And I apologize for those and I have no problem doing so. Yeah. But you just learn from them and, and you learn what's worth disturbing the peace and what's not. Yeah, right. But there were you know, a couple of times at the blaze that happened. People know I'm very passionate about law enforcement. I was in Dallas, Texas when we had the massacre of our officers. That hit me very hard. That was um, a real turning point in my career. I've always been for military and law enforcement, but when I felt that in that city, that hit me a different way. Yeah. So now I do even more with law enforcement. It's just, it just cultivated something in me. And then that couple with the 2016 election. Obviously, my final thoughts on Colin Kaepernick when I was at The Blaze. I was ringing on my personal Facebook page at around 75 million views before I was forced to delete them. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with 
Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Obviously, this is the time where you're getting a lot of notoriety. Things that are opportunities, I'm sure, start presenting themselves like mad when you start seeing that type of that type of distribution, viewership in that short of period of time. Can you talk to me about what that did for like your personal life, your personal relationships, or hmm. like were people at that point trying to jump in and exploit or jump in and ride your coattails up or? Mm, yeah, people are always gonna try to do that. For me, I just realized the impact of my life changing to where I've never thought of myself as a celebrity. I've never thought of myself as anything like that. But that's when it really started changing in the 2016 election where I was getting a lot of, and it wasn't just the election, it was the Kaepernick video. Year prior to that, I had the Beyonce Super Bowl final thoughts that my voice was sampled in a Jay-Z song. So there were moments where things... That's how you know you made it right there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you know, it wasn't in a good way, but that's when it, they started coming after me really hard and yeah. life started to change a little bit. They started to go after my family. They started leaking personal information, addresses, stuff like that out. And that's when I also started realizing that it was going to impact the people around me and the way people treat me is going to change. And it did. Yeah. It did because now I always have to be cautious and careful who, I, if I post a picture with somebody, sometimes they want me to tag them and then I tag them and they're like, people are hating on me, they're calling me names, can you please take that down? It starts to change or I, when I was in Dallas, which is still a sheltered environment compared to where I live now, just being in Dallas and being with my friends and either people would come up to want to take pictures or people would want to come up to say really horrible, awful things. But when you're with a group of friends who don't do what you do, it started to hit me a little different because I was like, almost, like, uh, I feel different now. Yeah. I feel like I'm different. I don't feel different because I don't feel like I'm any better, or any worse, or any different than anybody else. But 
the way I'm treated is different and it impacts people around me differently. So people actually came up to you in public and would do just a bunch of mean stuff. All the time. And or sometimes it'd just be people that are very nice. I was in Dallas, so a lot of conservatives come up, hey, can I take a picture with you? And they'd want to talk. And I started realizing that it impacted my friends. And I would actually just excuse myself because I didn't want to ruin anybody else's time. I didn't want to take anybody else's attention. I didn't want people to look at them or them feel uncomfortable because people were looking at them or looking at me. So I just dismissed myself. Mm. And that's when I started realizing things were changing a little bit. After going to the inauguration in DC, which you think would have been a really wonderful event. This is a president that I feel like my videos really did help to elect. And it should have been a really great time, but it was also a very violent time in our country. Mm. I experienced kind of violence firsthand when I was in D.C. for that. I had never been, I've traveled all around the country doing speeches, doing other events. It wasn't until then, and walking around D.C., that was after the inauguration, which was violent, and the Women's March, which was violent, when I started realizing, like, I can't walk out in crowds alone anymore. Wow. I can't, if I'm going to go into a city, what I used to love to do was just walk around and explore. Mm. When I used to come to New York, it'd be like, let me walk the whole thing. I want to walk from way down to Central Park all the way to, to, to Times Square. That was exciting to me. Learn new places. Yeah. And that's when it really hit me after that election was like, I can't do this anymore because it's actually dangerous now. So now that's my new, my, my new normal. I just know you just can't do those things anymore. Yeah. It's probably the, the worst prep uh, work ever. In college, I didn't do really anything but go to school and, and drink. But I really, I went down to the University of Alabama, and really all I really cared about was like college football and politics. Hmm. Uh, even though I didn't do anything, I was always read. I was a political science minor in college, and when my 150 pound, five foot nine frame wasn't going to measure up in, in any kind of athletic venue, <laughs> I decided to put everything into going into politics since about 22, 23 years ago, I moved uh, to San Diego from Tuscaloosa, Alabama and worked on a, a presidential convention. And just what I'd say is I got the bug. It's hard to describe when you work in politics. If you don't know work, work in politics, I'll give it like this. And this is going to be a little extreme, but literally this is what we talk about in politics all the time. It's like smoking crack. You have to get off the drug. And so you can't work on politics your whole life because it's 24-7. There are no days off. I went three years at one point with 20 total days off in three years. Wow. And the second the campaign ends, because you're fighting for things that are purpose-driven and things you believe in and people you believe in. And mm-hmm. when the campaign gets done, you go, thank God almighty, I am never going back to that. I am done with it. And about two weeks later, you go, I think I got to get back on one of those things again. And it's just it's like going back to the pipe. And it is, uh, that's the only way to describe it. And I did this for, for about 10 years before I started, started companies that helped political candidates run for office. Okay. Um, and that's a background. I worked on uh, and ran Senate races and governor races and congressional races and worked on three winning presidential campaigns, all doing political marketing. And then I did that for candidates for years and years. And then I had this, crazy buddy of mine who's an entrepreneur and he is a huge land developer out in Hawaii. And he said, I love politics. I wonder if what you guys do on the marketing side could help my business. And he had spent $50,000 on marketing for to, to this land development that he was putting together, trying to sell houses in a neighborhood in Hawaii. Spent $50,000 and had one lead. What? And yeah. Wow. And so we came in and, and applied political principles to the to his marketing 
and he gave us 7,500 bucks and we ended up getting him 750 leads. And they were good leads as opposed to one bad lead. Mm -hmm, Uh, And we just targeted his customer base like we targeted voters. And we did research on them and we communicated in a way that they wanted to be communicated to because we followed the data. And that's what we do with voters is we follow the data. And that I just went, my God, this is really something interesting. So then that led me to interview 100 people, uh, 100 CEOs for my book. And all of them had this massive frustration that the digital marketing space is a scam in all of their heads. And <laughs> so I decided when I saw that, I said, we're doing something in politics that's a little bit different. And this mm-hmm. is in alignment with your show, Travis, which is we are building personal relationships with voters mm-hmm. and using our marketing to reinforce that relationship. And our candidates go out and knock on doors. They go walk in parades, they do town halls, they get to know the voters, they use their status as a point to build even a stronger relationship. And then we market to reinforce that. And when we applied that to businesses, we had, we've had unbelievable growth. And so that's the genesis of everything. Wow. So how does that differ from what most marketers are doing? So you said that, Hey, we have this little bit of a different approach and we actually build relationships with the people who we're trying to target. You would think that would be really like the overarching theme of most marketing campaigns, but it sounds like that's definitely not how it is. So what would you say most people are doing in, and why do you think that what you do works so much better than what others do? Yeah, there was a Yale study that came out recently that said in, in politics, if you political marketing to voters that don't typically vote and undecided about a certain political race, it typically takes about seven contacts in some marketing mechanism or platform or various platforms to get them to convince them to vote for your candidate. Now, Tony Robbins has a great stat that in today's digital market space in the business side, it's 16 contacts. It's much harder to get some contacts. That's crazy. Yeah. into different platforms. It's so much harder. If you really think about it, it's so much harder to get someone to vote for an unknown or an unsavory candidate for office than it is to get someone to buy a tube of toothpaste. So what is it? What do we do that's different? 98% of marketers right now out there are selling business owners that they need to run Facebook ads, SEO. We need to put some stuff up and all that stuff. And it's all tactical. It's what drives me insane. There's never a strategy behind what they do. And so what we do differently is we have a strategy. And so we have about a three, four step process that we work with clients and I won't work with anybody that doesn't implement this particular strategy. And the first thing we do, the first thing, and this goes back to what your whole podcast is all about is we do data and research and analytics and psychological profiles of their customer base because we do this with voters before candidate runs. When a candidate decides to run for office, I say, what are the 10 things you're really passionate about? And then I go research and then I go run a poll in the district about those voters and what they care about. And I find the three things where they have the strongest alignment. And then I build the entire campaign around that because that's what the, the voters want to talk about. That's what they care about. And my candidate, he also, or she also believes in those issues. She just doesn't have a priority. So I find alignment and that's what we do for businesses. We go out, we have a partnership with the, the largest data collection agency in the, in the country. And we have put together a 50, 60 page psychological driver platform focused uh, research report 
on their client base. And it'll tell them everything they need to know about what their client candidate candidates, what their clients, what their customers think, what they feel, what drives decisions. And then we build a plan to build connections, to build the relationship with the customer. Look, this, it, what drives me nuts is there are 10 million people, right? And there are 10 million, 10 billion basically with their phones in front of their face right now. Hmm. And you're trying to compete, your, your company is trying to compete in ad space with that. If the customer doesn't have a connection with you, you are throwing all your money away. When businesses come to us and they say, we just can't figure this thing out. We've run a bunch of Facebook ads and we've got our SEO. And I go, good Lord, it's all tactical. You have no plan. You're not trying to build authentic relationships. You're not trying to connect with them in a genuine way that makes them loyal to you. Hmm. And I get this in politics because everything we do is based on the three R's. It's reputation. That's status. That's how you build, you know, your credibility. It's relationships, which is the fundamental key of your strategy. And then it's referral. And I've built my own companies on the three R's and I've never run an ad, never run an ad on from my marketing agency ever. And we've built it from a hundred thousand dollars less than four years ago to a $22 million business on the three R's. And so what we try to do is take that for companies and apply it to build authentic personal relationships so that they meet their customers for where they are, not for what the company wants to talk about. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So let me ask you this. Are the principles of marketing really just timeless or do they transform along with a certain vehicle that you know, you're using to get the information out there? I, it's a really good question. I, I think everybody wants human connection and we're in a world right now that doesn't have that. And it's really an outlier strategy now. It, it used to not be, but it is now. Again, everybody is, what platforms are you on? Well, I don't, I'm content agnostic hmm. or I'm platform agnostic. I yeah. go, I build content around how do I make a connection with the, with my clients or, or my, the, my clients customers. And so I'll give you an example. And this is not a client of mine, but there is a, I have a weird disease that it's incurable and I have a weird diet in order to deal with my disease. And one of the things I can't eat anymore is peanut butter. And, but I can eat pecan butter, which is strange. And you're like, there is such a thing. And yes, there is. <laughs> and, and over the last year I have eaten, I've ordered pecan butter off Amazon from a bunch of different companies. By the way, pecan butter is insanely good. It is like insanely good. But anyway, so I ordered it a couple months ago from this company in Louisiana called Gidry's Organic Pecan Butter. And when the box came in with the pecan butter, there was a, a handwritten note. And the handwritten note said, we, we take such pride in our product, but I want you to know that my dad wanted to let, you know, to tell you that you should put this pecan butter on something, a little ice cream, and it'll light your world on fire. And I thought, how brilliant is this? Hmm. First of all, I will never buy pecan butter from another company. That was like the sweetest, kindest, like I thought, I'm thinking in my head, that there's this dad in Louisiana, like you got to put some damn pecan butter on the vanilla ice cream. And I can do this from, I can do the accent because I'm from Alabama, but like, I just love that story. And so what did I do? I wrote um, an article about it in medium hmm. and posted it. And the family has all reached out to me and they've promoted it everywhere. They've sold hundreds more of the jars of pecan butter that did not cost them a dime to market that way. Hmm. 
It didn't yeah. cost them a dime. They actually built a connection with me, the customer. Now, if they were to take their marketing dollars and then use on platforms and, and actually remarket to me, that would make sure that those people are always in my brain. So I would be like seeing them and they, if they put out a video, how much more likely am I to watch a video that they put out than I was six months ago when I didn't care? Hmm. Yeah. So it's all really about that. People will never, people will forget what you say to them or whatever, but people never forget how you make them feel type of a situation there. And that's the way everybody's marketing should be right now. That's how it should look. Hmm. But the funny thing is if the customer or the client sees you as the commodity, you're dead. And everybody, the customer is in charge of this economy right now. And you cannot be a commodity in their eyes. You must be a, they must be a raving fan of mm. you. Yeah. How do you create your marketing and your entire business to do that? That's yes. what we've built our model on. And I'll tell you this, the way in my own company, in the rate is basically the roadmap for what we wrote in the book, which was I wanted to expose the lies that marketers are telling, because here's what marketers do to business owners. They literally say, you got to run some Facebook ads. We're going to do this. Oh, we're going to do, we're going to do a shoot. You're going to listen. You got to spend $25,000 or $50,000 or $10,000. And, and they have no idea if it'll work or not. Hmm. But here's the deal. The marketer gets paid regardless of whether it works for the business. And that doesn't work for business owners. And so I really wanted to expose the way that they're being business owners are being lied to and then try to reverse the game to show business owners what they can do to take back the power and actually win at the game of marketing. And by the way, that's a reflection of what we're talking about right now. I'm trying to authentically be honest with them, show them what to do and build a relationship, even though I may not know them so yeah. that I am a more trusted person in their eyes. And I like that. I want to be a more trusted person. That's the whole point. Well, that's it for this episode. If you want to connect with me and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com group to join my free Facebook group, The Lounge. I'll see you over there and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.